Okay, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. I'm going to read from the ESV, uh, but it, it should be pretty similar in most English translations. So let's read together. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you ought to be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Today, brothers and sisters, we're looking at this incredible passage of Scripture. It's going to speak to us today about what Christian leadership looks like. And Christian leadership should be obvious to us. It should be that which is like who? Like Christ. And this passage tells us more importantly than anything, it tells us what kind of leadership is Christian leadership. It shows us what way, what manner in which Christ was leading his people in that day. 
This is the third time in the book of Mark that Jesus predicts what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. The other scriptures are Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, and then here, Mark 10.32. Jesus tells them in great detail this time around what's going to happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. You remember, a few months ago, we studied the first time that Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. Peter took him aside, didn't he, and began to rebuke him. He said, no, this will not be, Lord. Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Jesus said what? He said, get behind me, Satan. The disciples are still having a really hard time conceiving of the fact that Jesus, the one who they love, the one who they followed, the one who they've seen raise the dead and work miracles, they're having a hard time understanding that this Jesus is going to die. He's going up to Jerusalem. He says not to be crowned in glory, not to reign over Israel, not to defeat the Romans, but no, to die, to be rejected, to be spat upon, to be killed. They're having a really tough time conceiving of this truth. Jesus says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, that is, the Romans, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Isn't Jesus not just our king, but also the high prophet, the great prophet? It's the third time he's spoken about what's going to happen to him. This is the most detailed of all. And Jesus knew, he knew what his calling was, didn't he? It was no surprise to Jesus that when he gets into Jerusalem, he is handed over to the Romans. We read in Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. It seems obvious, but I'm going to say it again. Jesus' death was not a tragic accident. It wasn't a tragic accident. Many people will ask these questions. Why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't Jesus keep a lid on it while he was in Jerusalem? He would have survived. He could have lived longer. Imagine the impact he could have had on the world if he just managed to escape death. But Jesus' death was no accident. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to what? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, the cross 
was the predestined plan of Yahweh. Isn't that incredible? Again, we're seeing God's sovereign will take place. And we're also seeing sinful men accomplishing that will. We see the sovereignty of God and free human beings sinning but accomplishing God's sovereign will. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that mind-bending? Well, how if it's God's will that this happened, how can these men be accountable for what they do? Didn't God will it? Wasn't it God's plan? Could they have done otherwise? The Bible says no, they were predestined to do it. But guess what? They're still accountable for it. This is one of these truths that bends our heads as Christians, but we have to accept it. God even predestines sin in the Bible. There's no way to escape that. The greatest sin of all human time was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, was it not? The spotless Lamb of God didn't deserve to die, but he was killed by the hands of lawless men, Acts 2 says. But it was the predestined plan of God, foreordained before the foundation of the world. God predestined that sin, but brought incalculable good from it. I struggle to get my little brain around that, but it's what the Bible says, and so therefore I must believe it, and I must proclaim it. What's more is, it wasn't just the predetermined plan of God, it wasn't just something that existed in the knowledge of the Father, but the Son knew it too. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He knew where he was headed. And more than that, guess what? He led the way. This passage says Jesus was leading the way down to Jerusalem. He knew where he was going. He knew what he was walking into. But he led the way. He wasn't dragging his heels. He wasn't complaining he wasn't moaning at God saying, Lord, please give me an easier path. He was leading the way. I think this is an example for us as Jesus' followers. We're so easily given to temper tantrums, aren't we? When God's path for us leads a difficulty hill from the pilgrim's progress or through the valley of humiliation we're prone to temper tantrums God why me God you gave me a trial last year aren't we done for a decade now it's not fair well maybe it's just me maybe you're all holy but just as the road to glory for Christ led through the cross. Amen? Not around it, but through suffering, through pain, through death. So too, your journey of salvation is going to lead through suffering. It's going to lead through difficulty. 
But let me encourage you, just as an incredible, inexpressible amount of goodness came out of Jesus' deepest moment of suffering, so too, good, so much good that you won't be able to calculate it, will come out of your deepest moments of suffering and difficulty and pain even. Sometimes I find that hard to imagine. God, how could you possibly bring something good out of this horrible situation that I'm in? Out of this physical pain that I'm in? Isn't it hard to sometimes imagine how God will bring good from stuff like physical pain that just seems so random? I struggle sometimes to imagine how it can. But let me just point out three simple ways that it might. Think of the pain in your life. Let me just talk about very simple three ways that the Lord can bring about massive amounts of good through your suffering. Number one, He's going to mature you in your faith. How many of you can attest to that? That when you suffered, your faith matured. He can mature you in your faith through suffering in a way that He won't when all is well. Number two, He's going to make you better able to minister to others who suffer when you suffer. How many of you felt God soften your heart towards those who suffer after you suffer? I know that I have. I've had so many hard edges knocked off me through suffering. I'm much more compassionate to people now that are broken. I don't feel as judgmental or that I've got all the answers for them. You know, sometimes one of the most loving things you can do is sit and listen to somebody's pain without trying to give them all the answers, isn't it? Isn't it difficult sometimes when you sit with another Christian and you're just trying to pour out your heart and they're trying to tell you all the reasons that you're in that difficulty or they're trying to fix you and they can't listen to your pain. You know, I believe Jesus sat and listened to the pain of those who were around him without trying to give them 10 steps while they got in that difficulty in the first place. Sometimes God puts us through seasons of suffering so we can sit and listen to somebody who's broken and absorb all that pain and weep with those who weep in a way that we can't when we don't suffer. You know, I actually think that I actually think sometimes the devil wants to keep Christians out of suffering. I think the devil wants to keep many Christians out of suffering. And that sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Well, the devil wants to kill, steal, and destroy. Yes, he does. Guess how he can do that? By keeping some Christians in a place of happiness, eternal prosperity, and... never having to endure a trial because it leaves them hard against those who are really suffering. It leaves them in a place of not being able to identify with people who are hurting and therefore not ministering to them like Jesus would minister to them. Does that make sense? And thirdly, I think we learn humility. I've kind of already said this. But when we don't undergo suffering, we're very cocksure of ourselves, aren't we? I've been ministering in Christian churches for 10 years. So 
since I was kind of in my late 20s. And I'll tell you what, I'm glad for the sufferings and the pain and the mistakes that I've made because they've made me more humble. It's just like when you, you meet those kind of like, you know six formers? They're just a breed, aren't they? You know, they've got every answer, haven't they, to fix the world. Their politics is better than your politics. Their ethics are better than your ethics. They know everything. Speak to those same six formers 15 years later and see what they know then. I reckon they know less, and that's good. Encountering difficulty, walking up difficulty hill, crossing over valley of humiliation, teaches us humility. And let me tell you, that's the way of the Christian, the way of humility. Now, what's crazy is that each time Jesus prophesies his own death, did you notice something? Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. Every time you see Jesus tell his disciples, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. Do you know what they immediately do every time? They argue about who's the greatest. They fight about who's the biggest, you know, who's got the biggest ministry. Who's the most important. Immediately after Jesus says, I'm going up there to die, they're like, Jesus, I just, just hold that thought. You know, Peter, I think I'm greater than you. I think my ministry is going to be the most powerful. Every time they do this, it's literally like they're not hearing what Jesus is saying. And here we have James and John, the, the sons of thunder, Boanerges, the sons of Zebedee. They're two of Jesus' inner circle, right? Them and Peter. They approach Jesus on the road, they catch him up, and they ask him this really manipulative question, don't they? You know, have you ever been asked a question like that? You know, you know uh, Robbie, I want you to do this for me, right? Don't, don't deny me. It's a manipulative question, isn't it? I want, I want for you to do this for me. Don't say no, Lord. <laughs> it's an extremely manipulative question. Grant us whatever we desire. Okay? And they want what? They want the two most prestigious places in Christ's kingdom. Let us sit one at your right, one at your left in glory. I want to take a moment before we dive into the meaning of that, because we're going to hit this hard. Before we do that, I want to answer a, a small question of apologetics. How many of you know what apologetics are? It's not when we apologize for being Christians. Sometimes that happens, right? But apologetics is 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give defense for the hope that is in you, Okay. So we're giving a defense. And some skeptics of Christianity, they say, ha, here's a contradiction in your Bible. Because in Matthew's gospel, there's the same story. But in Matthew's gospel, it isn't James and John asking the question, it's their mum. you imagine that? You're a full-grown man and your mum's popping up to ask your leader a question, walking into your place of work and asking your boss, can my son have a pay rise? You know, this is the level. In Matthew 20, 20 and 21, uh, it says this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, 
Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. So in Matthew, it's not James and John who ask the question, it's their mother. And we know that Mark's gospel, it says definitely that James and John ask these questions. So what's going on here? Doesn't that seem like a contradiction, like an error in your Bible? And if that's true, if there is an error in your Bible, that means what? That means your Bible's not inerrant. That's very serious, isn't it? Because what then can we trust? What's right, what's wrong? Very serious that we believe that our Bibles are the infallible and errant word of God. Otherwise, we are on shaky ground. So is there a contradiction here? Well, first thing to mention is that both accounts have James and John. Matthew's gospel doesn't say they were there. It doesn't say only their mother was there. It says their mother was with them before Christ. And it was her that asked the question. And who was Matthew? Matthew was a disciple, wasn't he? He was the tax collector, Levi. He was there when this happened. So what does that make him? He's an eyewitness, isn't he? Matthew's an eyewitness testimony. So's Mark. What was Mark built on? It was built on the eyewitness testimony of who? Do you remember? Peter. Peter. So Mark is retelling Peter's account of what happened. So you've got two eyewitness accounts of the same thing happening. Two independent witnesses of one event. Now, let's imagine for a moment that outside right now, there was a bump. Two cars bumped into one another. And let's say that you all saw it. You all saw it. Every single one of you watched what happened. Okay? And then I came round and gathered statements from each of you as to what happened. Would it be fair to say that out of the, I don't know how many of you here, would it be fair to say that in each testimony there would be slight differences. Slightly different ways of saying the same thing. Some of you would be positioned at slightly different, sort of like positions, you'd have seen it differently, right? The angles would be different. Maybe some of you would have different perspectives on what happened, okay? We wouldn't expect every testimony to be exactly the same, would we? That would be strange. It would almost be like you copied from someone. So in the Gospels, we've got to allow for slight differences in the stories, in the way they're related. It doesn't mean one is accurate, the other is false. It's just that Matthew picked up on a bit more detail here. He saw James and John's mum there asking the question, whereas Mark just retells the story and misses that bit out. It doesn't mean she wasn't there. It's just a different perspective. It actually goes in favour of the Gospels being legitimate eyewitness accounts, that they are slightly different. If they were all the same, we might scream collusion. Someone's copied from someone and you've just literally copied and, copied and pasted and got it out there. But these are independent eyewitness accounts of the events of Jesus' life and death. So let's get back to what's happening here. James and John, we want you to grant this for us, Jesus. Don't deny us. Do this for us. We want to sit right and left in your kingdom, in your glory. 
James Edwards is a biblical commentator, and he says this, quote, The brothers hope to honor Jesus while honoring themselves. How easily worship and discipleship are blended with self-interest. Or worse, self-interest is masked as worship and discipleship. title of today's message is Worldly Leaders Condemned. It's easy to scoff at James and John. It's easy to put distance between us and them and say, I would never do anything like that. How arrogant, how presumptuous, isn't it? We so often scoff at the disciples the same way that we scoff at the Israelites who moaned at Moses in the wilderness. But I love that the Holy Spirit chose to include these stories because guess what? So many Christian leaders have the same desires that James and John have. They just mask them a bit more tactfully. Grant us to sit at your right and left in glory. They had a desire for what? For importance. For recognition. For power. For fame. And they saw Jesus as their root to those things. Jesus, we want you to be glorified. We want you to be lifted up, amen? But us too, please. Now, I think that not all of their desires were unholy. Not all of them were. You know, they, they had this... They had this kind of unhealthy desire, let's say, for these things, for recognition, for honor, for prestige. And instead of going into the business world or the world of politics to achieve that, you know, some, some people in this world go into ministry to achieve those things. Some do. They're okay with Jesus being glorified as long as they get a share too. That's what James and John were doing. And I think sometimes we've got to say that each of us in our hearts as a human has this deep need to be validated, don't we? And I want to say there isn't actually anything wrong with that. Because inside of you is built a heart that was created by God for love, for relationship. And that's not wrong. We've got that deep need, haven't we? For somebody to tell us, you're all right, you. I like you. And that's not sinful. The bit that's sinful is where we take that desire and we try and fill it by manipulation, control, grabbing power, using people, basically, to fill that need. The way that we actually get that need met, brothers and sisters, is by taking it to God. And I know that sounds so simple. Of course you're going to say that. You're a pastor. And, and it's a very simple answer for something that's very complicated. But we must do this. We must take this need, this deep desire in us for validation to God in prayer every day. Every day I need to do this. Take that desire to be noticed, to be loved, to be validated, to be recognized and say, God, I've got this need in me. And I know you put it there, but I know it's meant to be met 
and, and not by my wife, right? Not by my church, by you. Does that make sense? I don't want to be too harsh on James and John. I just want to say they're trying to get it met in the wrong way. And Jesus says to them, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Isn't that just the truth about some of our prayers? We just sometimes don't know what we're asking. And I'm glad that God didn't grant me some of my prayers. How about you? I'm actually glad that God didn't say yes to some of my dumb prayers that I prayed when I wasn't thinking straight. Right? It's just as well that some of you haven't had all of your prayers answered. We'd be in trouble. Okay? God is wise. He's wise. And he knows when we need things better than we do. He knows what we need better than we do. Jesus says to them, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? And what he's saying here is, what's this cup? He's talking, he's talking about the cup of suffering. And in some ways, the cup of wrath of God that he's going to drink on behalf of mankind for the sins of the world. The baptism, what's he talking about? Well, He's talking about his death. He's talking about the, the death that he will die. Can you do that? Without hesitation, James and John say, we are able. We're able, God. It's usually a bad idea to make promises to God concerning your ability to do stuff for him. Right? We all said it, God, I'm going to be a nation changer for you. God, I'm going to shake this city for you. I'm going to do it, God. I'm going to be up every morning at 5 a.m. I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be calling in your kingdom. God, I'm going to win the lost. I'm going to see 100 people saved this month. Okay? Listen, nothing wrong with hope. But let's place our faith in him. <laughs> Not in our ability to do great things for him. We can get into a little bit of trouble there we start boasting and bragging about what we're able to do outside of his grace Jesus says you know what you will drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with I don't think James and John knew what he meant by that <laughs> but Jesus says to them in answer to their question about places to his left and right he says you know those aren't for me to give away actually those aren't for me to give away those places are for whom it has been prepared pre prepared hear that? pre before prepared this is another one of those divine passives you heard of that before? We don't see Yahweh written here, but it's him that's doing the prepared. It's him that's doing this. And once again, we see the hidden, divine, sovereign hand of God in this passage. The Father knows the names of those who will sit at Christ's right and left in the kingdom. When Christ returns, the Father knew then, and he knows now, the names of those who will sit at Christ's right and left. Because he's prepared that place for them. Once again, we're seeing that the whole of salvation, 
from start to finish is in God's hands. We then read in this passage that when the ten hear what's happening in this discussion, they rush up to Jesus and it says that they're indignant at James and John. They're indignant. There's an outpouring of rage. It's the same word, actually, that we heard about Jesus. Do you remember earlier in this chapter? We heard that Jesus was indignant about something. Do you remember what Jesus was indignant about? He was indignant because the disciples were preventing these little children from coming to him. He says Jesus was indignant. He was indignant because someone was being hindered from coming to him. But the disciples were indignant because they were afraid that James and John were going to steal some of their glory. What a contrast. You know, put simply, for for pastors, for those in ministry, for church leaders... It is absolutely unchristlike to have a me, me, me attitude. You know, here's, here's the test. If we can't, and I say this to all of you, whether in ministry or not, if you can't bear it when one of your peers gets a promotion, you can't bear to see it when one of your peers at work or a friend gets a promotion or gets something nice said about them, you can't handle it, you're indignant. What about me? There's a problem that we've got to ask God to come into and heal in us. All of us suffer with these temptations. Whether they're little flashes of emotion, pain, suffering. We need to ask God into those moments. Don't get shamed. Don't be like Adam and Eve hiding. Say, God, you know, sometimes I struggle with that me, me, me attitude. Sometimes in my heart, I'm making everything about me. I don't know about you, I do that sometimes. Do you? You realize that you had like a bit of a selfish attitude about your family. You know, you tell your kids, just go away, just give me a minute, because you made it about you. Or in ministry, God, I'm just not content in ministry because there's not 500 people here. What did we do? We made it about me, about my desire for success prestige it's not about you and then Jesus redefines greatness for them the disciples are all there they're indignant Jesus don't just give it to them what about me I want to be great too Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with desiring to be significant but he redefines what significance looks like, doesn't he? Jesus calls them to him, calls them in close. In the Gospel of Mark, whenever Jesus calls them in close, he's about to break it down for them. And he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. In fact, in the Greek, it literally says, it is not so. Not it shall not be so, but it isn't so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos, your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be doulos, slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying something, isn't he, about worldly leadership that I want you to pay attention to. I want you to pay attention to this. Jesus is saying stuff to us here about what worldly, demonic leadership looks like. He says it looks like domination. Domination over your sphere of influence. Domination. Control. It's about controlling people. It's about being cutthroat. Making hard decisions. Not thinking particularly about those involved, but making those cutthroat decisions. Winning. Success. Prestige. Honor. Acclaim. Having people serving you. That's what worldly leadership's about, isn't it? How many people can you get to do your bidding? That's greatness in the world. Great leaders in the world talk a good game. They're able to talk themselves up, aren't they? They're able to talk up their work. And actually, it actually brings success in the world. If you can talk yourself up, I am great at what I do. What I've built is incredible. It actually garners success for you. But Jesus says, it is not so among you. None of those things are what it is to lead like Jesus. So if you're seeing things like that in pastors, they are not Christian pastors. Simple as that. That's what Jesus is saying. No other way to look at it. Worldly leadership demonic leadership is focused on self what can I get for me what can I do to make myself more great more powerful kingdom leadership Jesus leadership is focused on others what can I give what can I give of myself to benefit those around me and if I'm offered the things of the world, prestige, money, fame, I'm going to turn them down. Because I recognize those things will corrode my heart. If pastors and ministry leaders really understood and followed what Jesus is saying here, we wouldn't see the, the epidemic of pastoral abuse that we see. I know many of you have been hurt in church before. I believe if we as pastors are taking this on myself, if we understood this, there'd be less of that stuff going on. And I think it's incumbent. That means it's, it's on you and it's on me and every Christian to know the marks of a true pastor. It's our responsibility to know what a true pastor, what a true Jesus leader looks like or a Jesus follower, let's say, and a worldly leader looks like. We need to know this so that we aren't led astray by imposters and we're not damaged by unqualified men and women. See, not every Christian that leads in that worldly way, I would say, is necessarily a demonic leader or a false teacher, but it would certainly make them an unqualified teacher at best, at best. And we want to be on our guard against those things. I think that too many Christian 
leaders, ministry leaders, pastors, get their model for church leadership from the world and not from Scripture. I'm going to read to you um, a little uh, list of must-nots. Pastors must not, okay? And I didn't make this up. I actually looked at some of Mike Winger's work on this same passage, and I took this from one of his videos. You can find it on YouTube. But I just thought it was phenomenally accurate. And it's basically scripture backing up what a pastor ought not to be. And so there's 10 points. I'm going to read them to you. According to scripture, Christian leaders, number one, must not be arrogant or prideful. That's 1 Timothy 3.6, Titus 1.7, 2 Timothy 3.4. Number two, they must not be a self-promoter or a lover of self. Must not be a self-promoter, somebody that's always tooting their horn about what great stuff they're doing, what wonderful ministry they're doing, always selfieing with everyone. Must not, according to 2 Timothy 3.2, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy. Must not be self-promoters or lovers of self. Number three, they should not be domineering. Should not be domineering, bullying, or look to control people in their church, or look to drive those out who disagree with them. How many of you understand that in a church, not all of us are going to agree on everything? And as a pastor, I have to be okay with that to a certain degree. I'm not saying I've got to have people preaching up here who don't believe that Christ is God. Not going to happen, okay? But on the, there are certain smaller things, aren't there? And there might be something in me that you have an issue with. And I want for you to feel free and safe to come to me and say, Graham, can I just share with you what you did actually hurt me or made me uncomfortable? And I am to receive you and not drive you out, not make you my enemy, not push you away. So a Christian leader should not be domineering or bullying. Number four, they shouldn't have a critical spirit, a critical spirit or abusive speech. And they shouldn't be brutal in dealing with others. They should be gentle. That's 1 Timothy 3.3. 3 and 2 Timothy 3, 2 and 3. Number five, they should not be vindictive or unwilling to seek forgiveness for the wrongs that they have done. They should not be uncorrectable. If you're in a church where you can't challenge the pastor, you can't correct him, you're not in a true church. I'm just going to put it out there for you. I, I was corrected last week on something that I said up here that wasn't correct. And I'm grateful for that, and I corrected it. I'm not saying that I always get that right. I don't. But I sh every pastor needs to be correctable and needs to be willing to seek forgiveness for the wrongs that they do. Number six, they should not manipulate people by making misleading statements. Misleading statements in order to draw people's attention away from any issues in them or in their ministry. True Christian leaders don't create false narratives to distract, to protect ministry, okay? One of the dangers that we all face, especially Christians in, in ministry and leadership, 
is to turn the ministry itself into an idol. And we protect that at all costs. Even if people who are hurting are saying, hey, the ministry really broke me. It really hurt me. And they have to silence them because they're trying to protect the thing they built. That's dangerous. That's 2 Corinthians 4.2. Number seven, they shouldn't use flattery or gifts to gain favor. 1 Thessalonians 2.5. Number eight, they should not be a respecter of persons, especially favoring talented, rich, or powerful people. That's James 2.9. Number nine, they should not have a bad reputation outside the church. I think that goes without saying. And number 10, as we read earlier, they must faithfully teach Christian doctrine according to scripture, not their own private revelations, not their own ideas or philosophies. That's 2 Timothy 4.2. So we can see that the opposite of those things is a faithful Christian, somebody who's gentle, who's kind, able to teach, loving. You can read 2 Timothy. You can read Titus on these things. I'd encourage you to do it. Hold me to account as a pastor. Jesus says to them that no servant is greater than their master. And so if Christ came and humbled himself, if Christ came and gave his life as a ransom for sinners, then what's Christian leadership to look like? Like servanthood, like giving of oneself. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The reason the disciples, I'm drawing to a close now, the reason they had a problem with that is because they'd read in the Bible about the Son of Man. They knew about the Son of Man. From Daniel chapter 7, it says, verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what the disciples were expecting, wasn't it? And they're confronted with this, this strange picture of the Son of Man dying, being rejected. No, may it never be, Lord. They forgot, though. There's another passage in the Old Testament that speaks about the same man, isn't there? In Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 5, he was despised rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I'm going to invite the worship team back. I want to ask you that question today. Jesus says, I came to give my life as a ransom for the many. Can you look at your life today and say, yes, I'm one of those many for whom Christ gave his life as a ransom. A ransom from what, you may ask? From sin, from death, from the devil. His life has paid to free us from the shackles of sin. Not just in remitting our guilt, but also freeing us from the power of indwelling sin in our lives. We can now choose to live a life of holiness. To live and break off the shackles of sin in our lives. 
can we say, yes, I am, for, I am one of those who Christ came and gave his life a ransom for? Amen. That's all I want for you to do is ask that question. Secondly, I want to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask um, a couple to come up now and just minister. We have a prayer corner over here. Um, so I'm going to ask, uh, could I ask Dean to come up and pray for people? And um, Lynn as well, if I could ask you to pray for the ladies. I want to ask you to stand with me. You know, I actually want to give an opportunity for people to respond today. For those who've been hurt in church. Perhaps you've been hurt in this church. I don't know. Maybe you've been hurt in other churches. Or maybe you've just been hurt in relationships with Christians. Sometimes this hurt can get hidden. Because for some reason there's taboo around it, isn't it? We feel shame around these wounds. But I feel I want to give an opportunity for people to receive prayer and ministry if they've been hurt in Christian environments by leaders who maybe weren't leading quite like Jesus. So if you feel that resonating with you, you feel, yeah, I'd like to receive prayer for that. Please come over and, and, and get prayer. Maybe you're here today and you have, um, maybe you're here, you have concerns about yourself, whether you know you've got some of those seeds in your life of making it about me. We've all got them. Maybe you need to just come and ask for prayer to help you with that, to be more like Jesus, to be more generous with your life. Or maybe there's something else. Maybe you want to make sure in your heart of hearts that you are counted in that many that we just talked about, to make sure that your life is hidden in Christ. Let's pray. Father of creation, we want to thank you that you've given us such a wonderful example in Christ who came to serve us. Can we even imagine that? He came and humbled himself, as Philippians 2 says, not only by coming into this world, but even being obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the Lord that we serve. And now, Lord God, we pray that you might come once again and just convict us gently of your love for us. Bring us, Lord God, the grace that you purchased at the cross. Father, for all those who want today to just recommit their lives to you and say, Lord, I want to be a follower of Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would come and fill us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Mm -hmm.